This is the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. We have stories for you from Focus on History, my weekly column, which now runs in the Daily Gazette and the Amsterdam Recorder. Uh, This is a a column that uh, ran in the month of April called Boxing, a Popular Sport in Amsterdam. Amsterdam was a boxing mecca in the 1930s and 1940s, a legacy of boxing matches arranged for soldiers at the city's National Guard Armory, now a boutique hotel called Amsterdam Castle. Fights also were staged at Lanzi's Arena on Bridge Street by the family who still operates an Amsterdam restaurant called Lorenzo Southside. Uh, this particular column uh, came to be because of a visit Miss Audrey and I uh, paid to Lorenzo's to have dinner. And one of the uh, Lanzi brothers, I think it was Larry, uh, came out with a book or a scrapbook uh, about all the fights that used to take place at Lanzi's, but, you know, not barroom brawls. These were prize fights, boxing uh, matches, uh, which were held at something called Lanzi's Arena. I probably could have checked into this to be sure, but my hunch is Lanzi's Arena was outdoors, that they had the fights take place in the outdoor outdoor ring. So in addition to the National Guard Armory, they also had fights at uh, Lanzi's Arena, and there were bouts held at the former junior high school gym on Guy Park Avenue. Other people in Amsterdam uh, were also involved, or many other people, in the the boxing frenzy, if you will. Sammy and Jimmy Pep, who owned a West End restaurant, trained fighters and were friends with German heavyweight Max Schmeling. Uh, Schmeling had fought Joe Lewis in uh, two bouts in the 1930s, and he was fighting for Germany. So uh, his loss was kind of a blow to Adolf Hitler. A trainer who was in Amsterdam was named Jojo Zeno. I mean, there were other trainers, but Jojo Zeno was especially uh, well-known. He had training quarters on East Main Street. For many years in the 1990s, school teacher George Lazaro wrote a weekly history article in the Amsterdam Recorder called A Bit of Reminiscing and frequently discussed boxing. In a 1999 interview for the WMHT-TV documentary Carpet City, I asked Lazaro why boxing thrived in 1930s Amsterdam. He said, quote, that's a good question. All I can say is that we had so many good athletes here, great athletes who were proficient in basketball, baseball, softball, hockey. Boxing was just another sport. Lazarou died at age 91 in 2012. He was a fighter himself in Amsterdam back in the day. He was trained by his friend Buddy Benoit, who became a professional fighter. Benoit had been trained in Amsterdam by Jojo Zeno. Lazarou said, Buddy Benoit and I went to school together. He became a professional fighter. 
He fought Jake LaMotta and barely lost. He was that good. Benoit began his boxing career in 1936 when he was 16, according to an article written by Lazarus. In a span of 11 years, Benoit amassed a total of 120 amateur and 76 professional fights. In 1939, Benoit won a decision over another one of Amsterdam's great fighters, welterweight William Sailor Baron. An estimated 1,600 people jammed Lansing's arena to watch that match. Sailor Baron served in the U.S. Navy in World War II. Lazarou wrote that Baron took part in an estimated 500 fights, including bouts when he was serving in the U.S. Navy. He also worked as a bartender at Schenectady's Hotel Van Curler and maintained decorum, to use the modern phrase, in the movie theater as head usher of the Rialto in Amsterdam. Sailor Baron died unexpectedly at age 60 in 1950. Lazarou wrote, It was said that a chip of Amsterdam died with him for such was the image of the man. Lazarou wrote of Benoit, turning professional in 1940 and fighting under the name of Buddy Odell. He compiled an enviable record of 66 victories, losing a 10-round decision to the tough and rugged Jake LaMotta in 1942. Odell, that was the name that Benoit used when he was a professional fighter, Odell was Benoit's mother's maiden name. Let me um, ask uh, Dave Green to to join us because you actually met Jake LaMotta? I did meet uh, Jake LaMotta once. It was a broadcast, what they call in the radio business, a remote broadcast for a store opening in the city of Albany. Oh, we're talking maybe... 35 years ago, spent about four hours with him. Interesting man. He, Jake LaMotta, was a friend of the uh, man who opened that store. I cannot give you the name right off the top of my head, but that was the association. And because we were just discussing this before we started recording this podcast, Bob, we uh, came across the information that Jake, in spite of the fact, well, let me set this up. Uh, when we when we searched for him on Google, the pictures that came up, uh, pictures of a man who had his brains beaten out to be quite to the point sure. about it. But he he died in ni- he died in 2017, and he lived to the age of 95. So there you are. Well, well a couple of these uh, fighters that I've been talking about from Amsterdam also had long lives. The store, what kind of store was it that he was opening? As as I recall, it was a, um, it was a, I think it was a a jewelry store. Jewelry store. Yeah. And we, (laughs) and, and Jake LaMotta was from, was born in Manhattan. We also found that information. Uh, You even found his real first name was not Jake. Obviously that's a nickname. It was Giacomo or something like that. Giacomo, pretty good, pretty close on it. That's what I think uh, we saw. And matter of fact, that information was uh, go- supplied to us by the people at Google. You, you didn't mean him. I mean, did he impress you, or did he seem tough or scary in any way? Although 
This is many years after his fighting career. You know, 35 years ago, I have, I have no idea, but here's the word I'll use. He seemed to be a gentle gentleman. Ah. Yeah, a lot of times you find that, don't you, that some of these fighters are very polite in, you know, when they're not beating your brains out. <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then when they lost track from there. You know, interesting, I, all I can ever claim is, you know, everybody has the claim to fame that, oh, you run into somebody famous in your life. That's, that's the only person I know of. Jake LaMotta. Well, back to the Amsterdam boxers of the 1930s and 1940s. One thing that's un- interesting in Amsterdam, I, I will say unusual, is uh, the city mayor, uh, Amsterdam Mayor Michael Sinquanti, has done many things in his life. He was worked in business and industry, but he also is an Amsterdam historian, and he has uh, written a number of history books about Amsterdam, in particular his Amsterdam birthday books. And I think that's where you find, in one of the birthday books, the story of Buddy Benoit, whose real name, according to Mayor Sinquanti, was Delore Benoit Jr. Benoit's father had moved to Amsterdam from Canada and worked in one of the carpet mills. You don't often hear that much about Canadian a migration to Amsterdam. You're maybe more apt to hear about Poles and Italians and Ukrainians and Lithuanians, and in later years, Latinos moving to Amsterdam. But I guess a certain number of Canadians did as well. After his uh, boxing career ended, Benoit lived in California, according to Mayor Sinquanti, and became a claims adjuster for an insurance company. The former boxer died in 2014. In another article about Amsterdam boxers from the 1930s and 40s, Lazaro listed some of the names of local fighters of that day. It's what sometimes is called telephone book journalism. See if you know any of the people on George Lazaro's list of Amsterdam boxers. Matt and Dominic Perfetti, Sammy Crocetti, Measles Rocco, Carl Palumbo, Frank Piccola, Vic Rodrigo, Shorty Persico, Tony Squillace, Freddie and Dunk Bea, Pete and John Duchesse, Buddy Lenahan, Johnny Carp, Matty Sizdek, Tony Conti, Joe Nagorka, Cliff Gaskins, Buddy Lenahan, Mickey DeBerry, Young Rappo, and Frankie and Tony Marcelino. You might say, gee, Marcelino's kind of a, a familiar name, which could be because today Amsterdam has a well-known mixed martial arts fighter named Tommy Marcelino. Actually, his uh, boxing name is Tommy Guns. Marcelino, and he was related to Frankie and Tony Marcelino. And I guess I just can't help myself. One other, a couple of names that in that long list to draw some attention to it, Pete and John Duchesse. Uh, that's the famous Duchesse family from Amsterdam. Uh, John is the father 
of the man who became fire chief and mayor, John Duchesne Jr. Uh, but uh, John Duchesne was a fighter in the 30s and 40s, as was his uh, brother Pete. And John uh, told me that when the war came, World War II, the fighting pretty much, well, the fighting started around the world, but the boxing matches in Amsterdam kind of slowed down uh, to a crawl. And after the war, he said, once the men came back and they served in the war, they didn't want to, he said, return to fighting and get hit in the face for $2, which I think was a, a bargain basement fee that you could charge in boxing in Amsterdam back in the day. Our Focus on History podcast continues. This story, Amsterdam's Psychedelic Philosopher, Benjamin Paul Blood. I've written uh, several columns about uh, Mr. Blood. He's in one of my books. It's uh, stories from the Mohawk Valley. Most recently in print, I did a column in 2016 about Benjamin Paul Blood. Poet and philosopher Benjamin Paul Blood of Amsterdam was known for both his physical and mental strength. Born in 1832 near Fort Johnson, Blood was the only son of John and Mary Stanton Blood, prosperous people who owned 700 acres of land on both sides of the Mohawk River. Benjamin Paul lived many years in a large brick house on the family farm in the town of Florida on the south shore of the Mohawk River. The site reputedly was where colonist William Johnson had established his first trading post. The Recorder newspaper wrote, In his youth, Blood was physically stronger than nearly all the men he met. Blood was educated at Amsterdam Academy and studied at Union College in Schenectady. He published a long poem, The Bride of the Iconoclast, before he was 21. He married Mary Sales of Clyde, New York, in 1854. Around 1860, his life was changed by a dental visit in which he was anesthetized with nitrous oxide, commonly called laughing gas. I believe they still use it today. Blood said the gas opened his mind to new ideas. He continued experimenting with the mind-altering drug to have mystical experiences. Blood's wife, Mary, died in 1873. Later that year, he married Harriet Lefferts, who was 22 years younger than Blood. In 1874, Blood published a pamphlet on his use of nitrous oxide called The Anesthetic Revelation and the Gist of Philosophy. A well-known American philosopher, William James, reviewed Blood's pamphlet for Atlantic Magazine. James and others began using nitrous oxide to have mystical experiences. James visited Blood in Amsterdam. James and Blood called their philosophy pluralism, 
meaning that mystical experiences could be religious, drug-induced, or achieved by other means. In a letter to James, Blood said, I do farming in a way, but am much idle. I have been a sort of pet of the city, and I think I shall be missed. Blood was well known for his poems, many published in Scribner's magazine, and letters printed in local newspapers on philosophy and current events. He gave a good review to a book that defended capitalism against its socialist critics. He debunked the tricks of visiting spiritualist mediums. James' last published work was an article about blood for Hibbert Journal, a liberal Christian periodical published in England. James included a quote from blood. We have dreamed of a climax and consummation, a final triumph where a world shall burn and barbecue, but there is not, cannot be a purpose of eternity. It shall pay mainly as it goes or not at all. Blood wrote in 1918, I am still clear and confident in that religion of courage and content which cherishes neither regrets nor anticipations. Blood, 86, died in 1919 after what was said to be the first serious illness of his life. And odd to me, he was living on Eagle Street at the time, this wealthy man. That's a working-class neighborhood. It's where the Dembskis lived and where some of the Cutmores lived and where the Naples lived and so forth. Blood's funeral took place at the home of his daughter on Guy Park Avenue, Mrs. Mary Morris. The recorder, after Blood died, said he had been known by sight to almost everybody in Amsterdam. His widow, Harriet, survived her husband and died at age 91 in 1945. Blood was working on a book at the time of his death, Pluriverse, an essay in the philosophy of pluralism. It was printed posthumously by his literary executor, Horace Callan. Callan also edited James's unfinished works. He donated Blood's papers to Harvard's Houghton Library in 1955. Blood's Pluriverse has been digitized as part of Google's print library project. The book has sections on topics such as idealism, cause, self-relation, and a chapter on Jesus and free will. This is Bob Cudmore. We really need your support for our GoFundMe campaign for 2023. Uh, please uh, go to our website, bobcudmore.com. Lots of interesting uh, stuff there. Otherwise, you can uh, write out a check to me, Bob Cudmore, and send to 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. Keep history alive by donating to our 2023 fun campaign for the Historians Podcast. Our Focus on History podcast continues with another story about Eagle Street in Amsterdam. I was a little surprised to find that Benjamin Paul Blood, this wealthy, shall we say, eccentric gentleman, uh, from the Amsterdam area, uh, spent the last days of his life living on Eagle Street, 
which was uh, more home to uh, factory workers and folks of that that nature, the Naple family, the Demskys of uh, of Eagle Street, my grandparents, my grandfather um, and grandmother, Harry and Elizabeth Cudmore, the Allen family, and so forth. But Benjamin Paul Blood lived there too. But I wanted to give you a story that has appeared in Focus on History, one of the many stories about the Kirk Douglas family called The Dembskis of Eagle Street. In his day, ragman Harry Dembski was as well-known in Amsterdam as his son Isidore. Isidore, who was called Izzy, changed his name to Kirk Douglas and became a Hollywood actor and producer after World War II. The comment next to Isidore's picture in his 1934 Amsterdam High School yearbook stated, not to know him argues yourself unknown. Harry Dembski, also known as Herschel, was a legendary strongman, drinker, and brawler. Kirk Douglas wrote in his 1988 autobiography, The Ragman's Son, that his father was the toughest, strongest Jew in Amsterdam. Douglas wrote, quote, There were other stories about my father that raised him to the level of legend, that he popped metal bottle caps and crushed shot glasses with his teeth, that he would go from saloon to saloon with an iron bar, betting for drinks that he could bend it with his bare hands and doing it. According to Douglas's book, his father was born Herschel Danielovich in Russia. His wife, Bryna, or Bertha Sanglel, was born in Belarus. Their six daughters and one son were born in America. According to census records, the children were Bessie, Catherine, Marion, Isidore, who became Kirk, Ida, Frida, and Ruth. My Aunt Vera Cudmore and my mother, Julia Cook, were childhood friends with some of the Dembski girls. My mother said she was afraid of Harry Dembski when she used to visit the Dembskis of Eagle Street. Harry left his Eagle Street home most days with his horse-drawn wagon traveling the streets of Amsterdam yelling, Rags! Any rags! The rags and scrap metal collected were sold to what we would call a recycling company. Douglas wrote, I'd help my father stuff the rags into burlap bags. I'd jab four holes in the top of the bag, lace a woman's discarded stocking through the holes, knot it, and add it to the pile of bags. Douglas said he got to be quite good at stuffing rag bags. I don't think I'd have any trouble doing it today. Harry and his wife, Bryna, separated in their later years. At Douglas's expense, Harry lived at Bodgie's Fourth Ward Hotel on Amsterdam's East Main Street. Bryna resided with one of her daughters in the Capital District, then moved to the Jewish Home for the Aged in Troy. Harry also stayed at the home of one of his daughters in Troy late in his life, and two days before he died in 1954, Harry Dembski was moved 
to the Jewish home for the aged. Douglas visited him, but then flew back to California on a Sunday, believing that his father was starting to rally. However, Harry, 70, died later that day and was buried at the Cranesville Cemetery of Congregation Sons of Israel of Amsterdam. Bill Simons of Oneonta has written several articles about Kirk Douglas and his family for Jewish publications and has visited Harry Dembski's grave, which is on Cranes Hollow Road in Cranesville. He was guided there by Amsterdam Eagle Street native John Naple. Douglas named his Hollywood production company after his beloved mother, Bryna. The actor was at his mother's bedside in 1958 when she passed away at age 74 at an Albany hospital. Her body was buried at Temple Israel Cemetery in Albany. When Douglas came back home to Amsterdam in 1985 for Kirk Douglas Day, the dedication of a park and a parade in his honor, the park is off Chuckdenunder Creek, Kirk recalled how his mother would sit on the porch of their home on Eagle Street and say, Ah, America, such a wonderful land. Kirk Douglas died at age 103 in 2020. Historic Amsterdam League installed a marker at the corner of East Main and Eagle Streets, explaining that the famous actor and producer lived nearby. And our final story from Focus on History in this Focus on History podcast, some facts about Bert Deal, Bertus Deal, B-U-R-T-I-S-S. He was a mayor of Amsterdam. He was five foot five, weighed 150 pounds, but played varsity football for Amherst College in Massachusetts as his young as a young man. And into his 70s, Bert Deal was able to make an impact on a conversation. You'd be just talking to him, then all of a sudden he would jump onto a nearby table from a standing position. He was born in 1882 in Amsterdam on Division Street. He was the son of entrepreneur Charles Deal and Eugenia Mills Stanley Deal. Charles Deal moved his small family to West Galway after Bert was born, and the elder Deal operated a shoddy mill. Now, before you think I'm criticizing the Deal Deal family, that's the official name of what he did. He had a shoddy mill, and it was because some of the, well, here's the deal. The mill used scraps from woolen underwear to create new but inferior uh, woolen yarn. When Bert was six years old, the blizzard of 1888 occurred, the same year that his younger brother Howard was born. The doctor was marooned with the Deal family in Galway for several days until the roads were clear. The Deals, after a time, moved back to Amsterdam. He helped Principal Wilbur H. Lynch at Amsterdam High School pack his books for a trip to Mexico for an administrative teaching job. In 1900, Deal, P. 
pitched for the Creelers baseball team in Amsterdam. He went to college in 1903, joined a fraternity and all that kind of good stuff, but came back without a degree because his family had financial reverses. He went to work. He worked at GE in Schenectady and then with sales uh, for Mohawk carpet mills in Amsterdam. Amsterdam Mayor James Klein gave Deal his first political job on the Civil Service Commission in 1913. He served as mayor. He said he was a low-impact mayor. But in 1955, as his fourth term was coming to an end, Bigelow Sanford announced it was leaving Amsterdam, and Deal and sitting Republican chair Walt Going decided it was time for new blood. Republican Frank Marticello ran that year. You've been listening to The Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.